Welcome to another Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. I created this show with the intention of empowering others to help and love themselves. Aside from weekly skin tips, you will hear me spotlight extraordinary souls from around the world who are making a difference by helping people in their own way. Together, we can all make a difference, and it starts with love, love from the hip. Anxiety is one of the greatest human frustrations of all time. It also is one that is largely misunderstood. For starters, many argue that it has been recently discovered and hardly known, when in fact, ancient Greek medical texts prove otherwise. Throughout history, anxiety has taken on several other names, such as Angor, from the philosophical writings of Cicero, or hysteria, a word coined by Hippocrates, which comes from the Greek word for uterus, hysteron, because it was believed that only women suffered from it. In fact, the sickness, as Hippocrates called it, stemmed from a uterus which he believed to be deprived of the cleansing benefits received from sex and or procreation. Melancholia was another word which was used as a diagnosis to treat anxiety early on. By the 18th century, panic attacks were published as a symptom of melancholia. From 1655 to 1750, the word vapors became used to describe nervous disorders. Other psychologists coined additional words all describing anxiety. But it wasn't until the 1980s when the term anxiety disorder was officially recognized by the APA or the American Psychiatric Association. In 2020, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, or the ADAA, reported that anxiety is the most common mental disorder in the U.S., affecting over 40 million adults. Of this, 19 million adults experience specific phobias, making it the most common anxiety disorder, with 15 million adults with social anxiety, 7.7 million adults with PTSD, 6.8 million with generalized anxiety, and 6 million with panic disorders. The age group most affected are adults between 30 to 44 years of age. Women are also twice as likely to experience anxiety than men and have indeed suffered greatly for this throughout history. In fact, during the Victorian era, women troubled by anxiety were labeled as crazy and therefore confined to insane asylums and treated with electroconvulsive therapy. The KFF, or the Kaiser Family Foundation, a nonprofit which focuses on national health issues, as well as the U.S. role in global policy, stated that 4 in 10 adults in the U.S. reported symptoms of anxiety during the pandemic, with 36% having trouble sleeping, 32% trouble eating, 12% increase in alcohol consumption or substance abuse, and another 12% with worsened chronic health conditions. Sadly, the biggest increase in anxiety occurred among the younger adults, ages 18 to 24, which was 56% of all those who reported anxiety. Other data gathered during the pandemic revealed that women were still higher in comparison to men, households of color were disproportionately affected, as well as households with significant job and or income loss. According to the KFF, in January of 2021, 41% of adults reported symptoms of anxiety and or depressive disorder, which has been significantly consistent since the spring of 2020. This data proves that while anxiety is not something we catch from others, it most certainly affects us collectively. Anxiety is a dis-ease, it is a disorder, and it is a mental state of illness, but it is also meant to be temporary, like a passing emotion, 
However, we allow it to stick around and distract us from the very thing it is asking of us, to be present. It is no big surprise that anxiety is more common in the Western world. This is largely due to the fact that the concept of presence is deeply rooted in Eastern philosophies and religions, and that our tendency is to live for the future, which many philosophers believe to be the very backbone of anxiety. Ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus taught that the objective of living a happy life included reaching a state where the mind was free of worry, called ataraxia. He stressed that by removing a negative perception about the past, as well as fears about the future, one could live happily in the present. British philosopher Alan Watts explored the concept that anxiety is the byproduct of our inability to fully inhabit the present. Watts says that presence is really the only experience of I. After that, there is nothing that can guarantee us any measure of security and certainty for our future, especially for the existence of I. Yet in our desire to live for the future, which we believe to offer us the security we seek, we become separate from ourselves and our lives. Watts points out that this very separation is what makes us feel the most insecure and creates anxiety. The irony of it all is that our desire for security and our feeling of insecurity are essentially the same thing. And so, our lack of presence only stirs up the very feeling we fear, anxiety. Conversely, being present allows us to be aligned with the very thing that gives us the most security we could ever ask for, I or our true selves. As we navigate through the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, take comfort in these words from Alan Watts. No amount of anxiety makes any difference to anything that is going to happen. And to add to his great words, nor will it change anything that has already happened. Today on Love from the Hip, it is my pleasure to have author and psychiatrist Dr. Ellen Vora on my show. Dr. Vora will share a new and unconventional approach to anxiety from her latest book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming the Body's Fear Response. She will touch on recognizing and understanding anxiety, as well as holistic pathways to overcome it, and so much more. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The passing of our loved ones always proves to be very challenging, but can be met with ease when working with someone who can hold space, compassion, and especially someone who works across the veil. Allow Sakura Sutter, multidimensional channeler and intuitive medium, to be your spiritual guide with the other side. No matter if you choose to communicate with your transitioned loved ones to help you with the grieving process, or connect with spiritual, galactic, and other light beings to explore and dive in more on your spiritual path, Sakura can assist you. Not only does Sakura channel insightful messages, but she also incorporates her metaphysical tools to help you move through blocks and unprocessed emotions and feelings, providing you with a closure, relief, and new mindset to move forward. So don't hesitate to take your first step towards healing so you can start living your life once again. Remote sessions available. Contact Sakura at sakurasutter.com. That's S-A-K-U-R-A-S-U-T-T-E-R.com. Taking care of your body's largest organ can be difficult, but not for Astera Skincare Mist. This topical skin spray supports your skin's own natural healing defenses. Astera Skincare Mist is a light misting spray free of parabens, alcohol, toxins, and fragrance. 
This all-natural topical skin spray will take the woe out of your skincare worries without clogging your pores. Irritation, inflammation, redness, post-procedure sensitivities, no problem. With Astera Skincare Mist, you can continue about your day without the skin dismay. Acne, rosacea, psoriasis, sunburns, rashes, and fungus? Don't let these skin concerns inconvenience you. Instead, let Astera Skincare Mist allow you to be happy in the skin you're in. Available at Sakura Skin and Mind. Learn more at asteracare.com. That's E-S-T-H-E-R-A care.com. Hypnotherapy helps you discover and explore deep, sustainable life changes. Let Sakura guide your communication with your unconscious mind. Rid yourself of negative behaviors, fears, pains, and emotions. Weight loss, smoking, childhood drama, chronic pain, and much more can be addressed. Begin healing now. Learn more at sakuraskinandmind.com. S-A-K-U-R-A skinandmind.com. Bring out the healthy way of thinking you didn't know you had. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe and share my podcast, Love from the Hip. That's HYP, anywhere you can find podcasts. Today, I have the pleasure of having author and acclaimed psychiatrist, Dr. Ellen Vora, on my show. Hi there, Ellen. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Sakura. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And where are you joining us from? New York City. Uh, we have your snow. Can you come and get it? <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> so how do you define anxiety? Oh, I bristle always at <laughs> any attempt to define it. I mean, I I think that I, I finally have come to understand why I bristle at that question mm-hmm. is that it's part of, I think, our overall problem, which is that we really think of it as this entity and this fixed trait, then and we can get stuck in it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's been our presiding consensus. Our understanding is thinking about it as a chemical imbalance, a genetic chemical imbalance, and really something that is um, a trait about us. And and I think that that actually holds us back. It can serve as somewhat of a straitjacket. So I instead choose to look at it as a set of symptoms. Um, and it shows up very differently from one person to the next. One person might experience what we would call generalized anxiety disorder, a lot of pervasive chronic worry and tension and ruminative thoughts, whereas someone else might generally come back to a calm baseline, but they might experience social anxiety or a calm baseline punctuated by panic attacks. Mm. And and I, I think most importantly, we have to understand it's it's a state and not a trait. And it's something that is changeable and plastic. I love that. And it makes it seem more fluid or more that you're in flow and you just can move through it in that way. Yeah. So how many categories of anxiety are there? Well, I was trained to use the so-called Bible of mental health, the DSM or Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Um, And so we have this list of of anxiety diagnoses like generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder, whether without agoraphobia and so on and so forth. I was finding that that wasn't steering management in my practice in a meaningful way. And I understand why it exists. We need to standardize our diagnoses for the purpose of clinical research. We need to gatekeep certain invasive interventions. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's important to um, have criteria and say this person qualifies for this invasive medication and this person does not. 
Um, but in my practice, I'm not using any tools that need gatekeeping. Nothing is invasive or doesn't have potential harm. And I found a much more meaningful way of classifying anxiety was to think of it as two types, what I call false or avoidable anxiety, and then what I call true or purposeful anxiety, where false anxiety, it's really based in the physical body. And it's when the body gets tripped into a stress response and we subjectively experience that as anxiety. And it doesn't actually have to do with some deep inner truth about our problems. It is a physiologic state first and foremost. Something has gotten the body out of balance and created a stress response. True anxiety, on the other hand, is not something to pathologize. It's not something to suppress. It's certainly not something that we can decaf coffee our way out of. <laughs> it is our inner compass nudging us, asking us to slow down to get still and to pay attention to something that is out of alignment. And that can be in our personal lives, that can be in the world at large, but something is asking for our attention. There's usually a call to action built into that. Now, how did this notion of true and false come to you? I was really influenced by an author named Julia Ross. And she wrote a book called The Mood Cure. And she details this idea that we have our true moods when something happened and we're in a mood as a result. And then we have what she calls emotional imposters or these times when seemingly out of nowhere, we're suddenly irritable or sad or anxious or angry. But if you could really omnisciently look under the hood of the body, what you would see is that something has tipped our physiology out of balance and that creates a mood state. And I started to realize in myself and my patients and my practice that a lot of times when we were feeling these moments of acute anxiety, what was actually happening was someone was hungry or they were sleep deprived mm. or hung over or over caffeinated or inflamed in some way. And that was creating a mood state. And our brain, the consummate meaning maker that it is, is always all too happy to swoop in and tell us a story about why we're feeling the way we're feeling, but that that is actually a retrofitted justification. That's hmm. the brain trying to make sense of what is first and foremost a physical sensation. I like that retrofitted justification. <laughs> so out of the true and false, then, what would you say is the most common Oh, I mean, these days we all have plenty of both, <laughs> but I think the way to approach it is to think about false anxiety first mm. and to, I regard that as the low hanging fruit or the quick wins, and it can get in the way of our ability to navigate our true anxieties. So you start with what I call the false anxiety inventory and you just, when you're in a moment of peak anxiety, you review that and it can cue you to reflect on okay, so my problems are real, my stressors are valid, and I'm hungry, and I know I didn't sleep well last night, and I'm hungover, and I had an extra cold brew coffee this morning, and I'm due for a dose of my psychiatric medication, and so I'm less resilient in the face of these very real stressors. So you start by identifying potential root causes of false anxiety. You start to address them and chip away at that. That's why I call it avoidable anxiety. You can get rid of a lot of that anxiety. It's unnecessary suffering. And once you've cleared the air of the false anxieties, then it becomes a much more fruitful process to tune into the true anxiety. What remains is where we know something is out of alignment and requires a course correction. 
Now, as far as true and false, where would you say the emotional traumas or the wounds that are stored in our body, is that true anxiety or would you say that's false anxiety? So all nomenclature systems have their flaws, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I've, when I was writing the book, I really wrestled with whether to think of trauma as a false or a true anxiety. I think it's more true than false, but it does live on um, in the liminal space between the two. And I think that it's on, on, on the one hand, false anxiety in the sense that it's really our limbic system stuck in a state of arousal. And in certain ways, it's an inappropriate response. It's become a maladaptation to the present day. And it, it, it happens for a reason. It was at some point an adaptation to an unsafe circumstance. And so we get stuck into this state where it's almost like the, the foot is stuck on the gas pedal mm-hmm. in our limbic system. And we perceive everything as a potential threat. But then if we get to safety to still be stuck in that state, takes us out of the present moment, out of our ability to enjoy our relationships, to trust, to feel safe, to be fulfilled. And so in that respect, it has a a false quality. Right. But I think there's something very true and profound about the way trauma informs our anxiety levels. And in in certain ways, it's asking for, um, we need to honor what we've been through. And Mm -hmm. we do need to uh, bring that to resolution in some way. It's not just a matter of changing our diet and our lifestyle. And then by keeping us stuck, then it also keeps us from having new experiences, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So how much of anxiety then would you say is truly genetic? I I suppose I mean, genes matter, yeah. but it's our least hopeful narrative, it's the least hopeful aspect of mental health to focus on because it's the part that we can't change. Mm-hmm. And it's in, it's in, it's itself not as simple of a story as we've been taught to believe. When it comes to genetics, in mental health, in, in functional medicine, we say genes load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's always in a dynamic with our environment. It's only ever a predisposition, not a destiny, not a fate. And it- so I prefer to focus on the environmental piece where there's a lot that we can do but even our genes are themselves so much more plastic and in dynamic with our environment. Um, and this is the stuff of epigenetics, where we start to appreciate that the DNA that makes us up existed in the follicles in the ovaries of our mom when she was a fetus in our maternal grandmother's womb. And it was in a dynamic with the environment even then. So our DNA has been on this planet for a couple generations, not just theoretically, but in a very material, mm-hmm. concrete way. And um, and it's just to say that that had an influence on it and what we bathe our DNA in today has an influence. So all of this is intended to empower people, not to feel stuck or doomed, but to recognize that it's not set in stone, it's plastic, and there's a lot that we can do to inform the ways that our genetic code is expressed. Is it important for us as we're working through our anxiety to determine which of it is passed on from our ancestors and which of it we're getting now from our environment? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think that there's something about um, a reckoning with our epigenetics that to me is asking us to honor our ancestors and honor what they've been through and to not overlook that and to tell their story and Mm -hmm. to recognize that it shapes us. But in terms of moving forward and finding 
um, fulfillment and a state of well-being in our lives, sometimes it can almost hold us back. And that's where I think it's so important to recognize that just as our DNA was shaped in the past, it can be shaped again today, and we can shape our children and our grandchildren's experience by what we bathe our DNA in in our present day. Yeah, I was just going to say, by working on that trauma or that anxiety, we then the buck stops with us. We're not passing yes. it on, which is great. Yes. Okay. Now, can you explain for my listeners what happens biologically when anxiety occurs? So it's a little bit of a simplification, but I think the best way to explain it is that it's the body in a stress response. And a stress response involves the secretion of our stress hormones, things like cortisol and adrenaline, which then it shifts our autonomic nervous system into a sympathetic or fight or flight state. And there's a whole series of changes that can occur in the body. Our pupils dilate, our jaw muscles tense, our trapezius muscles can tense. We shunt some blood flow away from the digestive tract or the genitalia toward uh, the muscles so that we can run fast from a predator to the brain so we can think clearly to the eyes, um, to the heart. So it, our heart can beat hard enough to support a fight or a flight situation. And so it just, it puts us in a fight state in our bodies. And, um, and I think it's actually really powerful to know all of that because oftentimes in anxiety, part of what is so triggering is witnessing the body going through all these changes. We can become lightheaded or dizzy. We can feel tingling or paresthesias in our arms and our legs. Um, we can have tunnel vision. We can sort of feel like things are narrowing in on us. We can feel our heart racing and pounding and that's disconcerting to someone. Mm -hmm. And they feel like, oh God, am I having a heart attack? Am I dying? And of course there's a time and a place. It's not to sort of dismiss all potential cardiovascular episodes, but it's sometimes really empowering to recognize that this is not necessarily your body not working. This is your body working. This is your body mobilizing a stress response as it needs to do in the face of stressors. And I imagine for a lot of us who are living in our bodies, <laughs> we feel it more, right? Because it makes us be in our bodies. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something really good about being embodied and, and being right. very keenly attuned to the goings on in our bodies, but it does give us a constant uh, newsfeed of data that <laughs> if we're prone to anxiety, we can sort of fixate on some of that. Absolutely. So what led you to write your fantastic book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming the Body's Fear Response? I mean, I definitely got the memo that anxiety was an issue. Every patient coming into my office was struggling to some extent with anxiety. And it felt important to put this message out in the world because I didn't think that we had a satisfactory conversation happening around this aspect of anxiety. Um, to me, the less revolutionary part of my book is the focus on true anxiety, which I think it's still meaningful to point out that we don't need to pathologize all of anxiety that sometimes our anxiety is not what's wrong with us, but it's actually what's right with us mm. when we are viscerally connected to what's wrong in the world. But to me, the more important message that I want to get across is everything about the avoidable anxiety. because so I think it's creating untold amounts of unnecessary suffering. And I like to empower people to recognize that some of their anxiety is more overwhelming and feels more insurmountable simply because modern life gets our physiology very out of balance that there are things we can do to support a state of balance, to reduce unnecessary stress responses and walk away from a lot of anxiety. Um, and 
I, I like to treat anxiety. It's something I really salivate at. (laughs) There are certain diagnoses where I'm like, Oh boy, here we go. Roll up our sleeves. Mm -hmm. But anxiety for me, there's so many quick wins. There's so much low hanging fruit and you can take someone who's really suffering in incredible ways. It creates so much impact and quality of life. And through fairly small strategic shifts in diet and lifestyle, you can give somebody their life back. So I, I just, you know, for me, it was fun to write on this topic. Now, have you yourself experienced extreme bouts of anxiety? You know, I get that question a lot. And I think my answer is disappointing, but it's not my Achilles heel. I go out of balance in all kinds of other charming ways that I'm happy to talk about. But anxiety, it's been um, periodic through my life, but it's not the first place that I go. But 10 plus years in practice, I do feel intimately acquainted with the ins and outs of anxiety. I imagine so. (laughs) Now, and you wrote this book during COVID, right? That's right. (laughs) Which was the best time for you to (laughs) see this coming out in your patients, I imagine. It was was certainly um, a a crash course in just just bathing in the waters of anxiety because it really reached fever pitch even more than it already was. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think the U.S. is the worst when it comes to anxiety? I'm not sure if I really know the facts. Um, and it's easy to take this stance, but it does seem like there's a there's a version, there's a form of angst that is um, unique and uniquely pronounced in the United States. And I think it's for a lot of interesting reasons, you know, related to lack of state-sponsored childcare and um, lack of health insurance, and we don't have free education and all of these issues. Um, but I think that there is also even when you think about systemic racism and the sort of that idea of something's rotten in Denmark, like there's poison in our bedrock here. We are built on trauma. And I think that that informs our national anxiety levels and ongoing systemic racism, of course, is contributing to incredible amounts of anxiety um, and trauma and stress. And then I think that we are ambitious and there's something about all of these different waves of migration that People said, well, I'm I'm not content here. I'm going to go here for one reason or another, religious persecution or to build a better life for my children, whatever it may be. But there's a drive mm-hmm. and that can create incredible things. I think there's a lot of creative output here, but I think that there's a lot of striving and hustling and it is a little bit in our DNA, yeah. but I think that it, it creates an angst. That's a beautiful explanation. Thank you for and that. And I'll add one yeah. thing to it. I also think that from a false anxiety perspective, I think that we are uniquely unhealthy here as well. We're uniquely living in um, a place with um, a pretty loveless, massive um, food industry and our agribusiness and sort of what goes into how we feed ourselves, um, all of our exposures. We do have a government that I think has uniquely sold out our health to the highest bidder. Mm. So we're, we're very, we're in a, a cesspool of false anxieties here as well. I believe that 100%. <laughs> well, thank you for that. And with that, we're going to take a quick break, but everyone stay tuned for the Weekly Skinny up next and more Love from the Hip. On this Weekly Skinny, since hormones play a huge role in the health of our skin, I thought it appropriate to discuss the decrease in men's testosterone levels. Studies have shown that just within the last 20 years, they have dropped 20% and are continuing to decline at such a rate that they are dangerously close to being low for the overall population. 
while it is normal for testosterone levels to drop as men age, with the average drop at about 1% per year after age 30, new research is showing increasingly lower levels unrelated to aging. So why are they declining? Many healthcare professionals say it is related to an overall decline in our health. Some contributing factors, which sadly have become increasingly more common, are obesity, poor diet, excessive drug or alcohol intake, stress, and lack of sleep. Not to mention the world around us has become more toxic, physically and mentally. Environmental toxins such as endocrine disruptors found in plastics, chemicals and hormones found in our food, as well as the overwhelming fear-mongering taking place in our media, heavily contributes to lowering testosterone levels. While symptoms of low T can vary from person to person, they can include a low sex drive, chronic fatigue, erectile dysfunction, reduced bone mass, nerve pain, changes in cognitive ability, lower muscle mass, depression, mood swings, and difficulty in losing weight. Not to mention, it also affects the skin. Low testosterone levels can worsen chronic skin conditions like psoriasis and increase skin dryness. Lifestyle changes can be made to help increase testosterone levels naturally, which can include proper exercise, especially weight training, a healthy diet, adequate sleep, managing stress, and also mindfulness techniques. COVID certainly challenged our ability to maintain a healthy lifestyle and overwhelmed us with immense stress. Interestingly enough, a correlation has been made with COVID and low testosterone levels. Studies found that men who had lower levels of testosterone suffered more severe COVID symptoms. It was also discovered that COVID deteriorated testosterone levels in male patients who were hospitalized with it. And a seven-month study confirmed COVID's lasting effects on men's testosterone levels by indicating that more than 50% of men who recovered from the disease still showed low levels of testosterone. These findings emphasize the importance of being responsible for your health in order to maintain your hormone levels, to prevent health issues where you can, and most importantly, to treat your body with the respect it deserves. Men, care for your skin properly, starting with your face. Sakura Skin and Mind offers their Gentleman's Groom Clinical Facial designed for your rugged skin. A deep cleansing clinical facial is like a one-two-three punch to wrinkles, age spots, and problem skin. Tame those brows, ears, and nostrils. Sakura Skin and Mind, erasing wrinkles one clinical facial at a time. Learn more at sakuraskinandmind.com. S-A-K-U-R-A. SkinandMind.com. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. If you're just tuning in, I'm discussing anxiety with author and acclaimed psychiatrist, Dr. Ellen Vora. So, Ellen, before the break, we were talking about a little bit about your book. And I know one of the, the biggest takeaways is how much of anxiety is physically rooted in our bodies. Why do you believe? Or why do you think conventional medicine has overlooked that? Hmm. I mean, I think that the story starts with the fact that um, mental health, psychiatry, has been on a long journey of, of wanting to be taken seriously as a science. And so we, you know, because I think we, we worried that we were a soft social science and we wanted to be legitimate parts of the medical field. And so it made sense to take a very biologic approach 
to mental health, which sounds like it would be body-based, but it's actually not. It's purely thinking about mental health from the neck up hmm. and thinking about those genetic chemical imbalances, focusing on neurotransmitters and, and really thinking about um, some genetic chemical imbalance basis for mental health. So that's been the focus for the last few decades. And um, it's really been the great white hope. And we've all wanted that to be true because um, it's a disease model for mental health, which is a nicer idea than thinking that there are things that we can do to support our mental health. And therefore the implication is things that we must do to mm -hmm. support our mental health. Nobody wants to hear that because it feels blamey. It feels like a responsibility. It can be overwhelming, especially when we're struggling with depression and anxiety. And it, it sort of offers this idea that there's a pill that will fix it. And that's appealing, of course. I think the problem that we've been we've we've had is we're focusing too downstream. And I think to the extent that our neurotransmitters are playing a role in our mental health, I think it's a downstream effect of all of these upstream root causes, which include our genes, but that's one small piece of it. And it also includes our sleep, our nutrient status, how inflamed we are, the balance of our hormones all the way to more psycho-spiritual aspects of our health, like our connection to community and nature, if we feel that we are of service in our lives and making a meaningful contribution and even feeling a sense of meaning and purpose in general. So all of these are the upstream determinants of our mental health. And I think that we've been dismissive of all of that. We've thought, um, well, the physical component like what you eat can't possibly matter, even mm -hmm. though we focus on well, this kind of car, you would need a certain kind of gasoline to <laughs> treat that engine properly. We've really still been dismissive that the type of fuel or food that we feed our brain doesn't matter. And then the psycho-spiritual part, I think it makes medical practitioners squeamish to talk about spirituality or the role that community might play in our well-being. So we're only now coming around to acknowledging the the place that those have on the menu of how we support our mental health. And everything being all connected. Mm. So as a psychiatrist and someone who can prescribe psychiatric medication, what is your belief on that? Yeah, I, I love this topic because <laughs> it's, um, I, I don't really have a dogma on it. I am very much straddling these two polar opposite worlds. And on the one hand, I have my background in my training in medical school and psychiatry residency, it's very conventional. I have a prescription pad. I prescribe medication. Um, and on the other hand, I it's not my first line treatment. And I am very aware of um, the shortcomings of that approach. And sometimes it's such an incredible option to pull someone out of a place where they're stuck and I've seen it help my patients massively. And I'm not married to one view or another. I don't think there's a moral superiority to approaching things holistically. I'm in the business of decreasing human suffering by whatever means that can happen that are not causing any harm. And so if someone's helped by their meds, I count this as a victory and I want them to continue taking their meds. But I think that up until now, we've had a very limited menu of what we offer. We say, here are the meds, and here's the disciplines of therapy, and that's it. And if that works for you, great. But there are millions of people for whom that hasn't been a satisfactory treatment, and they're still struggling, whether they took a med and it was initially helpful, but the effect waned, or they've tried everything under the sun and nothing ever brought them relief. 
And people can start to despair and feel disenchanted and really feel like, well, those are the treatment options. They're supposed to work, but they haven't worked for me. So someone can start to feel really hopeless and think, well, then I'm just stuck. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in focusing on those folks who are feeling despairing. And I want them to know that was a very limited menu. And there's so much more that we can do to support your mental health. So don't lose hope. There's always a way to find some path to healing for you. I love that. So, And I think the last piece on meds is just that we haven't been having a conversation yet around the challenges with tapering off of medication, the prescribing or discontinuation withdrawal. Um, we need a conversation about that. It has to be upfront. It needs to be an informed consent conversation before someone takes that first pill. Mm-hmm. It's not to say never take a psychiatric medication, but people deserve to know the full range of efficacy and potential for risk and adverse effects. And then when someone is tapering off a medication, we need to acknowledge that there's a withdrawal state so that we can support it and mitigate that withdrawal. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) So now uh, let's go back to how anxiety is physically rooted in the body. Can you talk about some areas in there? Yeah. I mean, I love to start with sleep. Um, That one is so effective. When we are looking at mental health issues, there are a lot of mental health issues that can contribute to issues with sleep. And we can say, okay, you have anxiety or depression and you're not sleeping well. And we'll attribute the poor sleep to the anxiety or the depression. And that's valid, but there's two directions of traffic here. What we also know is that sleep impacts every single mental health diagnosis under the sun. And I consider it to be an easier entry point to support someone. So rather than, well, let's fix your depression with seven years of psychotherapy, let's fix your sleep with (laughs) a couple of weeks of interventions and strategies, and then someone might be less depressed. So sleep, it feels good. It's free. It helps everything. It makes us live longer and healthier and we're kinder and more patient and more fulfilled in our lives and we have better skin. So (laughs) it's just that we need to improve our sleep. And I think it's Um, In the past, an issue with sleep was that we weren't prioritizing it. There was sort of a cultural attitude of, I'll sleep when I'm dead or sleep is for the weak or it's slothful or lazy. I'm Superman and I don't need as much sleep. And I do think we've actually culturally moved away from that attitude and people are starting to recognize the importance of sleep and the prioritizing it. And yet it still eludes us. (laughs) And I think that has to do with modern life. And there's many factors, but by far and away, the lion's share of the problem can be attributed to our light cues Mm. because our circadian rhythm or our sleep-wake cycle is cued most of all by light and it's all messed up in modern life. So whereas we have this beautiful design that was foolproof on the proverbial savanna of evolution where in the daytime it's light out and so we secrete cortisol and feel awake and alert and then at nighttime the darkness save for some fire and moonlight allowed us to release melatonin and get tired. These days we're indoors during the day and surrounded by a psychedelic light show of laptops and phone screens and overhead lighting at night and we don't sleep. Hmm. And so we can fix our light cues to promote healthy melatonin release in the evening so that we can get tired and sleep well. How much sleep do you recommend we get? It's different for everyone. The range for about 95% of the population is from seven to nine hours. We exist on somewhat of a bell curve where most people need eight. Um, and so you're really a couple standard deviations away from the mean if you need less than seven or more than nine. But what I see in my practice is that 
um, a lot more people think that they need seven hours than nine. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, it's not like you just get to choose on a menu, like, hmm, I'll take the seven hours of sleep, please. And then I get to live more life and stay up later. Right. I think it's, it's unique to our constitution and our chronotype. And so we just need to know ourselves. And if you are a nine hour person, you need to fiercely and unapologetically protect that. I'm waving um, my hand. Yeah, I heard it once <laughs> described as a as a shoe size. Like oh. if if you're a sleep shoe size nine and you walk around all day in a shoe size of seven, it's gonna hurt. <laughs> I love that. Now, what about gut? How is, does our gut affect anxiety? Um, keenly, and there's a few mechanisms for why. And one has to do with the fact that some of our neurotransmitters are manufactured in the gut. Uh, we talk a lot about serotonin. We talk about the gut being the second brain and that the majority of our serotonin is actually geographically located in the gut. So it impacts our mood in that way. I think we're not talking enough about a different neurotransmitter called GABA, which is gamma aminobutyric acid. And that's manufactured by certain bacteroides species of bacteria in our gut. Hmm. But if we're taking multiple courses of antibiotics, if we're not consuming fermented foods, if we have that decimated ecosystem of bacteria in our guts, which is so common in modern life, we can be missing these microbes and missing out on the chance to make the neurotransmitters that help us feel calm. The gut is also keenly involved with inflammation levels, which can impact anxiety. And then the last mechanism that I think is really interesting is that there's a two-way street of communication between the gut and the brain. And when we're stressed, we know that the brain is impacting our gut. We know that chronic stress contributes to IBS. But the part we're not yet talking enough about is that the gut is also informing the brain. Mm. It's reporting on the state of affairs and saying, you know, either everything's copacetic, go have a great day, or everything is a mess down here. <laughs> feel tired, feel uneasy. I believe it's designed to motivate us to rest and make different choices. But I think often what's happening is we're just going through our lives in a chronic state of low-grade anxiety because our guts are unhealthy. Which is why also our gut is now called our second brain. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for explaining that. And with that, we're going to take another quick break, but everyone stick around for more Love from the Hip. The passing of our loved ones always proves to be very challenging, but can be met with ease when working with someone who can hold space, compassion, and especially someone who works across the veil. Allow Sakura Sutter, multidimensional channeler and intuitive medium, to be your spiritual guide with the other side. No matter if you choose to communicate with your transitioned loved ones to help you with the grieving process, or connect with spiritual, galactic, and other light beings to explore and dive in more on your spiritual path, Sakura can assist you. Not only does Sakura channel insightful messages, but she also incorporates her metaphysical tools to help you move through blocks and unprocessed emotions and feelings, providing you with a closure, relief, and new mindset to move forward. So don't hesitate to take your first step towards healing so you can start living your life once again. Remote sessions available. Contact Sakura at sakurasutter.com. That's S-A-K-U-R-A-S-U-T-T-E-R.com. A health crisis is one of the most challenging situations we will experience in our lifetime. It leaves us frightened, confused, and asking, why did this happen to me? Transformational coach Rory Reich experienced his healing crisis when the life he had so carefully constructed came crumbling down around him. The universe had offered him a challenge. He chose to accept it and to rediscover who he was 
before it was too late. In his book, Transform Yourself Through Disease, Rory shares his personal journey alongside eight practical steps to help those who are stuck realize their self-impairing beliefs and discover ways of transforming them so they can reclaim their health and create the life of their dreams. Don't let your health crisis define you. Take the next step and transform yourself today. For a free life coaching consultation, contact Rory at RoryReich.com. That's R-O-R-Y-R-E-I-C-H dot com. Is your tween starting to experience a change in their skin? Want to get them on an easy at-home routine and have good skin hygiene? Allow Sakura Skin in Mind to help your tween out. This brief, deep cleansing and educational 35-minute facial is just enough to get your tween, ages 10 to 12 years old, started off in the right direction. Sakura Skin in Mind uses the latest in the clinical skincare industry to care for your tween the right way. Sakura Skin in Mind, treating skin out there with an ounce of treatment and a pound of protection. Call 206-730-7429 or go to sakuraskinandmind.com. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. If you're just joining us, I have Dr. Ellen Vora here with us, sharing valuable insight from her new book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming the Body's Fear Response. So Ellen, what is the first step you recommend in dealing with our anxiety? Everyone's a little different. Um, I do think that if sleep seems like an issue, I will start there with a patient and have them prioritize an early bedtime, maybe get a pair of blue blocking glasses to support melatonin release in the evening and maybe keep the phone off the bedside table at bedtime, which is sometimes a tall order, but can make a big difference. And for someone else, I might just support their blood sugar, which can prevent a lot of unnecessary anxiety, just supporting stable blood sugar, keeping them out of a blood sugar crash induced stress response. But for someone else still, I might really lean in on community and just say, don't worry about these diet lifestyle strategies. Let's first prioritize building community back into your life, recognizing that I think this is hardwired in our DNA we were not the fastest or the strongest species on the proverbial savanna of evolution. We were the ones that figured out how to cooperate. I think it's for this reason that when we feel richly connected and held by community, we feel safe. And when we feel disconnected and isolated or ostracized on some level, it feels like a matter of life or death and creates a lot of anxiety. Absolutely. So what are some supplements then you would also recommend? So I do like to minimize supplements. I tend to think that um, our body works best with food and getting our nutrients from food. So in certain ways, like my favorite supplement is just getting someone to eat liver, um, which is like mother nature's multivitamin and to supplement with minerals um, in forms like shilajit. Um, But I think that when it comes to supplementation, I do like a lot of my patients with anxiety to the very least take magnesium glycinate. And that's something that you can take at bedtime. It's relatively safe and inexpensive. And it's repleting a deficiency that most of us have because our food is deficient in magnesium, because our soil is deficient in magnesium. And so, um, and it's relevant to about 600 biochemical processes in the body. So it really makes a difference to replete this so important mineral. Vitamin D is another worthy conversation, but it gets more complicated. I think that depending on how melanated our skin is, Getting it from the sunshine is often a really nice option if that can be done safely. Yeah, we need that in <laughs> Seattle. Yeah. So let's talk about spiritual tips. 
What are some spiritual tips mm-hmm. you recommend? Well, I think that we at least open up the question. <laughs> and um, this is something I realized I was doing my patients a disservice by being squeamish about this topic and never going there. And I don't have a horse in this race. I don't care what conclusion somebody comes to, but I do think there's value to, I think it's Rilke put it, living the questions. And um, and I think that act of seeking, especially if we can do it in the company of others, can soften the experience of anxiety, partly because a big part of anxiety is the inherent fragility of being a mortal human body on this planet and we will one day die. We will one day lose the people that we love. We may suffer. And that's understandably anxiety provoking. But I think if we contemplate the possibility that perhaps something vastly beyond our comprehension is occurring here, I find that that softens the edge. And it means that loss and these so-called worst case scenarios are a little bit less absolute. And I personally take a lot of comfort in that. And it helps me have a more resilient uh, attitude in the face of the unfolding challenges in life. And so I think a lot of my patients are supported by at the very least opening up to the question of what is their spiritual truth? And it doesn't have to be what you were taught is in childhood. Um, it, it doesn't have to look like anybody else's spiritual truth. It's just what, what feels true in your heart as you open up those questions. I love that. And as someone who has suffered with anxiety all my life, being present and being most aligned with myself is what really finally helped me to fully overcome it. Not that I don't have bouts of it still, (laughs) but most definitely. A big part of anxiety is reactivity. And it is that zero to 60 spiral that we can do in the face of what seems to be a hint at a potential negative consequence. It, it, it circles around themes of certainty and uncertainty and control and a lot of planning for potential negative consequences in the future. And then we get very reactive right. and spiral. And I, I like mindfulness practice for this, partly because it just strengthens the muscle of present moment awareness. Like I think about sitting down in mindfulness meditation where you're trying to hold your attention on the breath but then a nanosecond later, your mind wanders and you're <laughs> thinking, oh, I have to pick up milk at the grocery store and what am I gonna eat for dinner? And every time we think that means we're bad at meditating or that we've failed. And I don't think so. I think that's an opportunity. Because every time we come to and realize our attention drifted, we have this opportunity to pull our attention back to the present moment, to the breath. And that strengthens, it's like a biceps curl for these very atrophied muscles of present moment awareness. And when we practice that and strengthen that, it means the next time we're going through our lives and we're triggered by something, rather than shooting from the hip with reactivity and getting triggered and spiraling, we can we can choose how to respond, usually with more equanimity and a little bit hewing closer to compassion, understanding, love. I love that. Now, I know we haven't seen the true aftermath from COVID yet in regards to anxiety. And I want to ask if you can just provide one message for our children. If there's something you recommend that we can do for our kids. Gosh, it's so tough. I, I really feel for youth these days and for the people looking after the youth these days, because I do think it's a lot of both. It's a lot of true and false anxiety. And that true anxiety, it's not something to pathologize or to try to fix. I think they are viscerally connected to what is not okay in the world. And they're here almost in a prophetic capacity to wake the rest of us up. 
So that's really important, but it's a hard, it's a, it's a heavy burden to carry, but they are also swimming in a cesspool of false anxieties. And so as much as possible to just bathe them in conditions that as much as is reasonable, approximate some kind of something more similar to how humans evolve. And I don't mean to say like, we need to go be hunter gatherers and, and, you know, not have any of the comforts of modern life, but real food rather than processed food, more physical activity, more time in nature, a little bit more sunshine and fresh air, a little bit less of the screens um, and more community. All of that can go a long way. And I will be the first to say, it's not easy to support this for our kids, um, but modeling it for them and setting them up for success with little bite-sized shifts, getting them a pair of cool looking blue blocking glasses that they can put on in the evening. But at the very <laughs> least, even if they're on their screens or playing sure. video games, they'll still get melatonin release and it will help them get tired. Well, thank you for sharing that. Now, how can my listeners learn more about you or follow you and your book? Uh, I'm pretty active on Instagram. I'm at Ellen Vora MD over there. And then, um, I mean, I tried to distill all of my approach into 250 pages. So that's the anatomy <laughs> of anxiety. We'll see what you think how I did. Um, but it. I think that that's the best way to, to take this approach. All right. Well, thanks again for being here today and sharing your wisdom and doing the work that you do. Socorro, thank you. It's been an honor. And thank you so much for having me on. You're welcome. And thank you to Eric, my amazing producer, you the listener, KKNW, Timber Country, and Cape Town Zone Radio. You can find me at sakurasetter.com and tune in next Wednesday for another live Love from the Hip. Stay kind out there, stay true to you, and don't forget, make self-love contagious. Go ahead, I dare ya.